everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we discuss deep thematic points about the weekly Parsha. This episode is sponsored in honor of Bobby Winter's birthday by her children and grandchildren, Ariel, Lauren, Ilana, and Natan. Her deep love of Torah and Israel are a wonderful inspiration to us all. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast at matan.org.il. This Breshit series is titled Chosenness and Choices. The book of Breshit is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, Noach, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. But these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make. And it is the nexus between being chosen and the human choices that actualize this divine will in the world that we are exploring in these episodes. Parshat Vayigash opens with Yehuda's moving speech to Yosef that ultimately breaks down the smokescreen separating him from his brothers. After the big reveal, Paro invites Yosef's family to come live in Egypt, and Yaakov embarks yet again on a migration, this time out of Canaan. He is so concerned, it seems, that God reveals himself, a sole occurrence of revelation this entire episode, and promises Yaakov that this story will end well and that he will produce a great nation in Egypt. The Parsha also tells of Yosef's agrarian policies through which he turns the Egyptian citizens into tenant farmers of the state. The Egyptian people directly request of Yosef that they become slaves to the state so that they can survive. This, there's some irony in this interaction where Yosef, who was once sold as a slave, legally and willingly enslaved the Egyptian population. This also perhaps foreshadows the future era of slavery of the Jewish people. Today I'm joined by a new guest, Adina Blaustein, who is the content production manager at Aleph Beta. She also serves Beachwood, Ohio's Green Road Synagogue as the Yoetzer Halacha. Adina is currently writing a book about Haftarot as part of Safaria's Word by Word Fellowship. Adina, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. So as we sort of wind down in these, in these Yosef narratives, as we like to call them, this is the climactic moment in, in that whole series where we finally get to close that gap between the, right, that dramatic irony of what we know versus what the, the figures in the story themselves know. And, and finally, Yosef reveals himself to, to Yehuda. And I guess in our conversation today, I sort of want us to focus on that interaction of what it means, where they take it. Uh, and so why don't we, why don't we start there uh, in this conversation? Wonderful. Really, the Parsha itself, and I, I see so much wisdom in the ways that the Parshiot are kind of blocked off because the drama of that interaction is really highlighted how the Parsha begins, right? Vaigash Yehuda, that Yehuda kind of steps forward, and you almost forget that this isn't almost a new story or new interaction. They're mid-conversation. They've already been speaking. Uh, but in blocking off the Parsha the way it is, our sages, our, the, the masterites are kind of pushing us to, to notice uh, this interaction, and so and so, seeing this conversation as a climax, and seeing what that interaction is like, and what emerges from that, I think is exactly where we're supposed to go. That's exactly what we're meant to notice. Yeah, and a few weeks ago, in a conversation on Parshat Vayeshe, we really focused on Yehuda versus Reuven, and the sort of different like leadership styles that they that they express in the throughout these parshiot. And here, we really see Yehuda 
stepping up and taking responsibility, speaking for others. We see him sort of, I always see it as very much a contrast to the Yehuda that we meet earlier, right? There he sort of is focusing on his own family. He's even focusing on some of his members of his family and other members of his family. And here I always feel like it's this like dramatic uh, repair, mm -hmm. right? This dramatic repair. He sees his father. He sees his father suffering, but he wasn't able to worry about then. He worries about now. He worries about his brothers. And there's something about the way that Yehuda acts here that is just... It's, it's definitely in striking contrast to how he was yeah. earlier. Certainly in Genesis 38, where he's so passive. He just happens upon a woman, right? He happens upon Tamar, right? His friends fetch everything for him. They, they're the ones who tell him, to, you know, your daughter-in-law has become pregnant, uh, he has to be pulled forward to adjudicate. And here he takes matters into his own hands. And he certainly seems to be, at least in this opening scene, uh, an adversary to somebody, Joseph, who is no less than second in command to the Pharaoh. So when you're, when you're considering that type of confrontation, I think thinking about how far Yehuda has grown is certainly an interesting thing that emerges in this opening conversation. It's funny because... That, that growth that you see in this character, I always wonder um, how much of it was he aware of. Hmm. You know, I, I have many years as a classroom teacher, and one of the most important things is that students develop a growth mindset. And, and what that means really is that they see, they're able to step outside their own bodies and see their own growth and believe that they can keep growing. And I kind of wonder, did Yehuda realize in stepping forward that this was a moment of growth, that this was a moment of heroism. Was this a harebrained thing to do? It could have ended very differently. Uh, what was he thinking when he did that? I mean, he could have been killed. Um, We're not worried for his life because we know who Yosef is. But he right, doesn't know so you who have to kind is. of read without the end in mind. But he he yes. could have been killed. Like this is him actually putting his life on the line by going against the will of someone who seems a very, you know, non-sympathetic uh, leader here in right. Egypt. You know, it's funny, Asafa, you had emailed me um, when you invited me to join this podcast. And, and as you said so beautifully in the introduction, that you're exploring Breshit through the lens of choices. And at first glance, when you read this Parsha, there's a way you can read it in which there don't seem to be very many choices being made. Right? Like, did Yehuda really have a choice when he's confronting uh, the, the second in command to Pharaoh? I mean... If he doesn't want Benjamin to be captured and thrown in jail, what else was he supposed to do? And and that yeah, that was a choice, right? We're realizing that that was a major choice. Um, was it really a choice that they had in the last parsha to bring Benjamin down? Even was that a choice? They needed food. Um, and I see this most, I think, strongly in the verses that describe. Yosef revealing himself to his brothers. How the parsha and the text seem to be playing with. Was this a choice or was this not a choice? So I'd like to point us to those verses because yeah. I think they're worth glancing at again. The text almost emphasizes how, how not in control of his senses and his faculty he is in verse 2. His sobs are so loud the Egyptians can hear. Almost emphasizing, wow, he is. this is a man not in control of his emotions. This is a man who hadn't planned on revealing himself in this time, in this place, but but does. And you're then, I think the text is playing with us of, was he in control? Was he not in control? Um, 
is similarly to the opening uh, scene of the of the Parsha where you're thinking, was Yuda in control? Was he not in control? Things just kind of happen that way. And I see this idea of of people kind of not not really making choices, but kind of making choices um, once more in the reconciliation that takes place between the brothers um, in the next few verses. Uh, so in the continuation of chapter 45, um, Joseph's first words to his brothers are, Ani Yosef, Ha'odavi Nuchai, is my father still alive? Ha'odavi Chai, is my father still alive? Um, but the brothers can't answer, right? They're so dumbfounded and they, and they just can't even think what to say. Um, those, those choice of those opening words, um, I like to think about that too. Like what else could he have said? Why did he choose those words? It's clear his father's on his mind. It's clear that seems to be the reason why he's, he, he, um, why he's so overcome in a way. I think that's a very interesting choice of, of reveal. I'm, I'm curious um, what you make of those so words. So it's interesting. First of all, in terms of Yehuda being, I think he's very much in control because his speech is very, very calculated. And I think that, you know, there we could spend the whole conversation speaking about like the rhetorical devices of his speech. But I think that there's something mm-hmm. very, very calculated and conscious about his speech. So I tend to think that that's something he practiced on his way down to Egypt. Um, but... But in terms of Yosef, I, I agree with you. But I'll just challenge yeah. that for a second. I agree that his speech is very measured and very political. Um, and But it's and, genuinely um, emotional, which is why it's moving. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Agree with you. And that's such a fa- and that's such a fascinating balance of how uh, I think you see a, a character strength in that that somebody can be swept up by emotion and yet still be able to be shrewd and calculated. Shrewd, I think, has a negative connotation. No, no, I agree with you. I mean, we both teach right in front of people. And I'm sure you have this experience where like you've planned something and you have a lesson plan and you leave it open because obviously you don't want it to be too calculated. And then sometimes you, I've had this happens to me often. I'm very surprised at like how emotive I am, and it's very genuine. Meaning, I, I didn't, I didn't plan. I didn't write insert emotion here, right? But as I'm teaching, <laughs> you sort of like get into the mode, and things happen by itself. And and most of it, I would hope, is a genuine reflection of what I actually feel inside, right? So that's kind of how I read Yehuda. Like he clearly planned, but he was also he also had genuine remorse. He had genuine care and all of those things were reflected in, when he speaks to, to Yosef. And so that's, I think, mm-hmm. what convinces Yosef to sort of... Yeah, he never could have imagined that the goblet would be in Benjamin's sack. He probably doesn't even, he probably might even wonder, did did my brother do this, yeah. right? Was he guilty? Did I not realize? Yeah. He, he doesn't really know everything that's going on that we know. There's so much dramatic irony in this scene. Um, and swept up by emotion. That's why I'm kind of pushing back on, did he rehearse this speech? I don't think he could have predicted that this would be the scenario that would face him. But I do agree that there is a wisdom and a calculation in his speech. That just makes Yosef's reaction, I think, so different. He told you that if he doesn't have his son come back, he he will not survive. So his question itself, I agree with you. He sort of, you would think that maybe his first, his, his first outburst would be, it's me, I love you, or it's me, and I hate you. Meaning he doesn't speak to the brothers, he speaks to the father. And there's something there also yeah. that's interesting. And I see in that, I see in that perhaps a sort of um, maybe an accusation, maybe a fear of you're pulling a fast one on me because you're telling me that, my, that you, you chose to bring Benjamin down. 
And you clearly know from your speech that this is going to cause your father grave harm. So is he still alive? Tell the truth. Because in Yehuda's speech, mm. I think uh, Yosef spots um, a bit of falsehood, right? Because Yosef hears in this speech what he's never heard before, which is how they, how they spun the story of his disappearance. They told, they told his, their father that, that Yosef had died. Tarof, taraf Yosef, right? A wild animal ate him. And, and uh, Yosef hears that and he realizes that there's a duplicity that he experienced as a boy that is still carried through in, in, in Yehuda as adults. Um, and I think in that question of Oravichai, I wonder if what's really going on is as overcome with emotion as he is, he's overcome because he hears uh, this fear of, uh, uh, he's overcome rather because he has this suspicion and this fear of, is my father really alive? How much of that speech can I really trust? Wow. How much of what you're saying is really mm-hmm. true? And, and that just leads me to look at the next conversation and wonder, where did this go from there, right? Like, like why, why didn't they really have that conversation, right? The conversation of, you lied. You were, you were horrible to me, and then you lied, and you, you lied to our father in, in however you spun this story, and you lied to me. And, and you, you look what you did to my life. And okay, it turned out okay, but this is not the life that I wanted to lead and not the choices, and not the choices I wanted to make. Um, but that's not what happens, right? Instead, what Yosef says in verse 5 is, Oh, don't be sad. Don't be distressed. And don't reproach yourselves. Don't blame yourselves. Oh, this was all God's plan. And in the subsequent verses, and even in the, the in Parshat Vayechi, Yosef kind of repeats this trope of, well, this was God's plan, and God was the puppeteer behind the scenes. So you guys don't really need to, to worry yourselves. Um, you don't need to feel so guilty. Um, and I'm struck by that, that in his moment of, it seems, losing control, Yosef turns to them and he says, really? Is my father still alive? Really? Are you lying? But then in the subsequent verses, he seems to make a decision to not really blame them, to not accuse them, to not confront them. And, and it seems like it's all packaged up like it wasn't a choice. He's just overcome by emotion. At, but it really, really, when you look at it clearly, he's making a choice not con- to confront them. And I, I wonder why that is. So, so I have two thoughts. One is uh, for all those listeners who are going to hold me to this, I do want to say that I mentioned something about this, uh, I believe, a year ago. So I'm saying it out. I'm saying it straight <laughs> up. Uh, are the back episodes all exactly, online? They are. Of course, they're listen. online. So I, I really have a hard time looking at these narratives any other way once I read it. But from I've mentioned before, if jo- uh, Professor Josh Berman wrote a, it was a blog piece, but I actually, I know he's writing a book on this, The Concept of Forgiveness in the Bible. Um, and he really opened my eyes to this concept that there are cultures of forgi- forgiveness and cultures of reconciliation. And in, in biblical times, those were cultures of reconciliation. And so it wasn't like this self-scrutiny, you know, al-chit, let me figure out exactly what I did and make sure I, you know, don't repeat my mistakes and sort of that uh, that introspective space, that's not the kind of society that is being reflected here. It's a society of reconciliation. Like, let's, you know, kiss and make up. We're, we're moving on. I don't, I, we don't need to go there. 
Um, and so that I think is important because I think to a certain degree, just also just sociologically, it explains like why, why not have that like conversation? I, I will just say to sort of on a minor tangent that I will say it's not, it wasn't my, it wasn't my, um, my fight, but someone I know, uh, someone who's close to me sort of had a rift with a family member for, for a few years and they really tried for a while to like cultivate that relationship, at least just get like, you know, some sort of communication going. And when they finally were able to a few years later, they sort of just like sat for coffee and we're talking and then like nothing, nothing happened. And there was no like, nothing very deep deep happened. happened. There was no like, (laughs) there was no like direct conversation about like the three year absence and whatever it was that like catalyzed that completely from one side of the relationship. And and then they said to the other person, like, do you want to talk about like what happened the past three years? And, and they were like, not really. Like I, I, I could go there, but all I know is that when you reached out this time, I didn't feel as angry as at the past time. So hmm. like, I just sort of, I want to respond, I think to, to both of the fascinating points you're bringing up. So the first about on um, professor Berman's book I have not read that book, but I've had many experiences where I've had a paradigm shift and then uh, read read a section or think about something. I can't think of it any other way. Mm-hmm. So I, I relate to that experience. Um, in terms of what's going on here, I absolutely I absolutely agree that uh, Tanakh, for whatever reason, doesn't really want us to delve too deeply into um, into conversations where there's going to be almost like a, a therapy uh, session. Um, <laughs> I completely agree with that. But where I see uh, what's going on here is an unfinished thread, right? So, so when he asks, um, Ha'od Avichai, is my father still alive? Um, they can't answer him. And, and that question kind of remains unanswered. It lingers, uh, for, it lingers yeah. And I, I think that that's the piece where I'm, I'm noticing of, there's an open thread. There's a conversation that perhaps, and this the reason is in a culture of reconciliation, as you're 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 kind of suggesting, it's not really meant to happen. Our expectations of Tanakh, our expectations from reading, um, in in our kind of social, um, 21st century um, understanding of how interactions should happen, um, is kind of mistaken. But it's an open question, mm-hmm. and that's and that I think you can't you can't quibble with, and and that question remaining open to me signifies. Tanakh's way of pointing to us saying there was something that never really got resolved. There was an, a conversation that never really truly happened that maybe could have happened. Um, well, I think also that the other thing I want to say. I'm going to interrupt you, and you're going to just one thing about about mm-hmm. the father, right? We till the end of Sefer Breshit will have this question: How much does the father know? Meaning Yaakov, as a general mm-hmm. player in the Yosef narrative, is shrouded in unfinished, you know, sort of unfinished business, unanswered yes. questions. So uh, just just supporting yes. that point, yeah. Yes, yes. And then the other point, um, it's fascinating. It, you know, the first point you're kind of arguing from um, Tanakh's own culture. I, you know, Professor Berman is an academic, and so I think he's kind of writing from the perspective of what are expectations that Tanakh has and, and kind of reading it on its own terms. The next point you're making, though, is when you read stories even based on human nature, um, human nature is not actually to engage in deep conversations, yeah. the DMCs of our, teen, our teenage years, mm-hmm. where we actually hash things out. Um, most adults, actually, uh, most marriages even, um, people really don't get into uh, the weeds and, and resolve things through words. People resolve things through acts of kindness, acts of friendship, acts of love. 
And those are the types of behaviors that often, um, more than words, can resolve tensions. Um, and, and so I, I, w- I, I would say I think um, whatever reconciliation that happens um, is going to happen because of how the brothers then experience in the next few chapters uh, Joseph's kindness to them in, in setting them up, giving them a place to live, um, and perhaps what Joseph sees and how the regard that they do have for the father and they do have for, for Benjamin. So that perhaps are those acts of, of, um, of love, acts of friendship, acts of warmth that they're able to, to kind of rebuild a relationship, um, to, to, to use to rebuild their relationship, perhaps. Of course, not living so close by, meaning they rebuild a relationship a, a yes. little bit like Esau and Yaakov and Seir, you know, like it, you it's see, not so close. You do see a bit of like, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer there. Yeah, totally. Like in, in some of the verses, the way that they describe, oh, I'm going to keep you in, in Goshen where I can keep my eye on exactly. you. Um, there's a bit of that going on. By the way, another thing that I think is very important for the point you're making is the is when you when you sort of said, that he immediately provides the theological frame, right? Yosef immediately provides, it's it's okay, it's not you, right? It, not only is he saying you don't have to feel bad, maybe he's saying that, maybe he's not really saying that, but he's saying... He blames God. Yeah, it's fine, it was God's plan, right? And I think... Hashkacha pratis, as people nowadays might exactly, say. Exactly, but I think that, that that piece is significant because it's a little bit like Yosef is saying, let's not reassess because I've spent so many years creating a theological construct that I could live with and it works for me. So please don't break it down and try and say something else because I don't, I'm not interested in hearing it. Right. And it comes back again, of course, I think that's a great in the point. last chapter yeah. of, yeah, of, of Rishi, but very much, he sort of like throws it at them. Right. You spoke about like, there really aren't that many choices here. You're saying like, let's not reopen this topic. Not interested in going there, you know? Yeah. And that's also a choice, right? In choosing totally. to to frame this as, well, this was God's doing. And who are we to quibble with God? So let's just accept. And that closes off, though, any any further yeah. re- introspection over, uh, do we still blame each other? Do we really believe that your dreams were real? Do we believe that Maybe your dreams were real, do we, but do we believe that we were meant to take action because of them or that they would be positive or that God really wants us to go down to Egypt? Um, it closes off all of those deeper questions once Joseph, Yosef, now, you know, it seems like the dreams are actualized, says, well, this is God's doing, right? I've prophesied. Um, it seems like they can't even walk down that path. And we see that that's problematic because in after Yaakov dies right they're worried that he's going to take revenge meaning because they never there is a downside to yes. the reconciliation as opposed to the forgiveness because in a situation of reconciliation you can't really be totally trusting that someone has actually moved on right they moved on but it might just be you know somewhat because they're if they still have to be scared well, that he's going right. to kill them well bec- because they have never reconciled Correct. Because in this moment, they have not reconciled. They've just said, well, it's God's doing and dad wants us to get along. Yeah. Once dad dies, then all of the unexplored, all of the conversations that were never had exactly. then suddenly come to the forefront. And then once again, and that's, I'm sure you'll deal with the next Parsha, Joseph once again basically says the same thing he said in this Parsha, which is, it's, it's God's doing. Yeah. Don't come to me, talk to God. Um, that, that moment, I think, um, seems to seal the deal. Because once you create a theology where you basically say, 
if this is happening to us, then it must be God's doing. Then in the next generation, in the beginning of Sefer Shemot, when they start to be enslaved, you know, it, it, these verses in the beginning of, of Shemot chapter one kind of rush by, you know, you look up and all of a sudden they're enslaved, but it almost seems like at no point were they able to stop and say, what's happening to us? Do we have any agency in the matter? Hmm. They've inherited a theology, it seems, from Yosef of if, if it's God's doing, then this must be. Um, wow. And that, that I, you so know, I, it, it I enslaves think, them into passivity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, you know, thinking about what, how Ibn Ezra is going to interpret um, those next few chapters in Shemot is that that mindset totally enslaves them um, psychologically just as much as their bodies are enslaved. It's a mindset of slavery. It's not just uh, an experience of slavery. Um, I see those seeds here. And I think that your point about the theology that Yosef offers um, is, quite, is quite astute because that's, that's perhaps where that seed is planted um, that has very negative repercussions. So I actually think that the Haftorah chosen for this week's Parsha perhaps presents an alternate ending. I have quite an obsession with Haftarot. I'm actually writing a book now about Haftarot that I would give anything to say, oh, check the shelves in a few months. It'll be years before anybody can, um, can read this essay. I hope not too many. But I, I, there's so much wisdom in the Haftarot that were chosen for each Parsha. And I, I see in the Haftorah perhaps a fork in the road, if you will. I see in the Haftor perhaps an alternate ending of sorts. Um, okay, so take and I there. think by looking hmm. yeah, I think by looking at, at the Haftor we can kind of see that. So the Haftor is chosen from uh, the book of Yechaskel, chapter thirty seven. And just to simplify the book of Yechaskel like a lot, there are basically three main chunks uh, to the book of Yechaskel. The opening um, is uh, before Yechezkel is is exiled very, very early on um, in the first wave of exiles around 598 BCE before the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. And he is writing in Babylonia and he's describing what's going to happen to that first temple uh, kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, that there's going to be a siege and they're going to be destroyed and it's going to be horrible. And then um, in the middle kind of chunk of the book, uh, in the last few years, months before the siege, he has this kind of oracle against all the nations, all the enemies of of Judah. Um, And then the ending of the book, the last third, after the Beit HaMikdash is already destroyed and after everyone else has kind of been exiled to Babylonia, roughly he then has these chapters of a beautiful comfort. He describes in great detail the temple is going to be rebuilt, etc. Chapter 37 is that chapter that kind of really kicks off that last third of the book of, of Yechezkel. Um, I would say, well, it, perhaps it starts a few chapters earlier, chapter 33, but chapter 37 is this incredible vision where um, in the beginning of the chapter, um, we read it on um, Shabbat Cholomoyed Pesach, um, it's the vision of the dry bones. So it's a very famous um, prophecy from the book of Ezekiel. He basically sees this valley and he sees these skeletons 
um, suddenly stand up and start walking and then uh, skeletons that that seem to be completely forsaken uh, become full full living flesh sinews and muscles and skin kind of becomes on them and he basically sees that what is dead suddenly becomes alive again and this seems to symbolize the hope of the of Israel is going to be reborn um, from from dead bones becomes becomes life again incredibly the continuation of that same vision is the Haftorah for for this parsha so what's the continuation of that so that starts in um, in in uh, verse 15 of chapter 37. God speaks to him again right after he sees the vision of the dried bones. And he says to him, take a stick, uh, take two sticks. On one stick, you're going to write uh, Judah and Israel. And on the other stick, you're going to write Joseph and the house of Israel. And then God basically says, do some slate of hand. Hold these two sticks in your hand together and these two sticks are going to become one. When people ask you, what does this mean? Walking around with two sticks in your hand, you're going to hold the sticks up to them. And then in um, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21, you're going to say to them, thus says the sovereign God, I'm going to take the Israelite people from among the nations they have gone to and gather them from every quarter and bring them to their own land. And then uh, verse 22 is, I think, where you see the, the real meaning of this, the asiti otam legoi echad ba'aretz. I'm going to make them into a single nation in the land. Now, from a political sense and from a historical sense, you really have to appreciate, I think, the whole vision in order to understand what's going on here. Because the vision of the dried bones, um, for the people living in Yechezkel's generation who would have heard it, for them, it isn't just about them that, oh, okay, we Judeans, you know, we're stuck in Bavel, we're the dried bones, right? We're the ones who are totally lost. Yechezkel also seems to be referring to the kingdom of Israel who've been exiled years and years earlier. And Yechezkel is saying, they're going to come back too. Mm-hmm. They're like, what do you mean, Yechezkel? Like they've been, in, they've been assimilated into Assyria like, you know, years and years earlier. Like there's no hope for them. And Yechezkel saying, no, not only is there hope, but... Israel, Judah, right, are going to be united again together. And and Yechezkel's hope for redemption and renewal is so much more expansive than just saying, oh, Judeans, you're going to go back to Israel and you're going to go back to Yerushalayim and rebuild the temple. His hope for renewal is the entire the entirety of Israel, right? The, the 12 tribes, Judah, Joseph, you're going to be reunited and you're going to come back together. I, I see in this, first of all, I, I just think it's a beautiful, it stands on its own and it's beautiful. Yeah. But then when you consider that of all of the passages to amend to the Parsha to be read together, what this Haftarah is really about is about reconciliation in an arena where you thought not only is there no renewal possible, but there is reconciliation possible. And then you look at the Parsha and here's what strikes me. Who's the dried bones of the Parsha, right? Who's the, who's the body, the skeleton, who's brought back to life in Parsha of Ayikash? Yosef. 
I think so, mm-hmm. right? And not only that, like think about his deathbed promise of take my bones out of yeah. Egypt, right? Mm. He's the skeleton, he's the dried bones. And then in this Parsha, he's like, I am Yosef, right? I'm alive. They're looking at him and they're like, what do you mean? Like, like even they know that they sold him, but they probably thought he died, yeah. right? What, what other fate is going to meet um, a young, hapless slave who doesn't, doesn't have any future? And then they see him alive. He's the dry bones brought back to life. And then, so that's kind of one thing that you're like, that is fantastical. That is not, not to be believed. And then not only that, he turns to them and he says, like, it's, a, it's of the past, right? It's all God's doing. Like, that's also crazy unbelievable that, that he is somehow willing to reconcile and willing to say, let's be a family again together. You know, the Haftorah is almost saying to us, Yosefa, Adina, forget that conversation where you're debating, did they reconcile? Did they not reconcile? You know, and the Haftorah is just saying, like, imagine a future where you can just dwell on that. Not only is he alive, but you're going to reconcile and you're going to really be joined together. The two sticks as one. Uh, Judah, Joseph, really joined together as one. What could that look like? What would that be? Well, well, that would be the future Yechaskel describes of this, this real redemption, this real, this, this real glory of God being able to rest among the people. So if I make sure I want to understand correctly, that you're sort of looking at this week's Parsha and saying it leaves you wanting, right? It's not really a full, we don't get that sort of satisfaction that like we feel that there's like some sort of closeness or unity exactly. that's created between I the brothers. I, at least I don't feel mm-hmm. this way. I don't feel like the reconciliation is complete. I don't feel yeah. like the tensions are resolved. I feel like there are open threads of conversation. But and then com- and then comes this prophecy and says and then comes this prophecy. We're gonna, we're gonna hold them together, right, in our hands. Meaning we're they're gonna be they're gonna have to be close and intertwined in the future. That what happened in yes. the parsha is I would even. Go, I was. I'm curious if you would even go far, as far as to say that the fact that they they don't reconcile. On one hand, we have Yehuda and Yosef are two leaders of the family, right? We've moved away from this model. We don't need one child who's the chosen one. We have two, right? Very important. Yosef becomes the, mm-hmm. you know, the representation of the powerful northern tribes, and Yehuda obviously is the Judean monarchy. But to a certain degree, they may even be creating, in the negative sense, this this precedent for the fact that the two stay separate, right? If I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, it's, it's not just, well, they're meant to be two leaders I of the family. I think so. But I think that's how many, pe- that, that certainly seems to be how the books of Navi seem to play off of Sefer Breshit, that what was a family conflict becomes a national conflict. Mm-hmm. And you certainly see this in the ways that the kingdom of Israel seems to be a Yosef type figure and even look at what the um what the Judeans are called, right? Yehuda, right? That he becomes the name of their kingdom in a way. So what is a conflict between two individuals becomes a conflict played out on a much more national, a broader scale. I just want to remind all of our listeners that if you just open up the plain verses of the book of Malachim, I mean we speak today about the fact that the state of Israel was on the brink of civil war, perhaps in the past few months before the actual war. Now, 
I mean, there was there were just generations of civil war between the two kingdoms in, in Israel. I'm learning with my daughter just for evening fun. So we're in the middle of, we're towards the end of, of Sefer Melachim Bet right now. And just so many times it says sort of, you know, Alder Chagav, by the way, and then there were years where there was war between Yehuda and Israel. And she was like, what is mm-hmm. that? She's like, what do you mean? They're related. Why would they be at war with each other, right? And 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 so we, we kind of sometimes forget that, meaning there's a whole expanse between the, you know, the forefathers or Yosef and, and Yehuda and, and this vision, of course, that you're bringing in so beautifully from the book of Yechezkel. And in those years, you have, you have generations of civil war between them. Yeah. So it just, it just underscores to me how we read the vision of the dried bones and we're thinking, wow, that is unbelievable, as in not to be believed. Yeah. But it's the second half, right? In, you know, in framing the Haftarah, I think that the Mesadrei Haftarah, whatever you want to call those anonymous people sitting around the table choosing the Haftarah, right? They probably had in mind the first half too that we that we would think about this, that we would realize that that's part of it. It's the two sticks becoming one that is just as fantastical and and not to be believed as as much as the first half. But then there's also a part of me that wonders. That's all it takes. I don't even know if Yechezkel's describing a miracle. Yechezkel's simply taking two popsicle sticks writing Yisrael on one and writing Yehuda on the other and holding them together in his hand. I mean, you know, I, I, haven't you ever told your young children, um, you're not in a fight anymore because I said you're not, right? Or something to that effect of like, you know, stop fighting. You said you're sorry, you're not in a fight anymore, right? Sometimes, at, we speak this way to children, but sometimes adults need to hear this too, yeah. that you're reconciled now. That's it. You're each other's family. You're stuck. You're together now. Yeah. Make, make it work, right? And again, we've been debating in the first half of this discussion, did they reconcile, did they not reconcile? Open up the beginning of Shemot, and now they're B'nai Yisrael. So they must have. There was something. There was some unification that happened, um, even if it wasn't as complete as either of us might, might wish. Um, Yechezkel certainly is emphasizing that whatever steps to Gula are achievable, a true reconciliation needs to happen and needs to be achieved in order for not just Yehuda, but for all of Beit Yisrael to be able to enjoy that next redemption. Adina, I don't think that there is a message that we sort of needed to hear internally more than that one. So uh, I just want to leave it at that with... Uh, with this really moving idea uh, of both that tension between sort of wanting to see something fleshed out to the other really human needs sometimes to just say, we're moving on, right? And we are stuck together and we will we will stay together. So I'll just end with a tefillah that, that Am Yisrael, wherever they are, are, uh, are hearing that and are able to be supportive of each other when, uh, when we're reminded that in the end, it's really all we have is each other and that's going to have to be good enough. So... Thank you. Amen, amen, and thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. 
Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.